I think the biggest blind spot in the battery material supply chain is, is actually rare earth elements. If, if shortages appear in the not too distant future, which we're projecting they will, and if those impact the auto industry, then that's going to have a ripple effect on the battery side of things. Welcome back to Rockstock Channel, and thanks for checking in. Before we launch into the interview, we'd like to thank all our Patreon sponsors. And for those of you who are new, share a bit about us. RK Equity is an advisory firm run by Rodney Hooper and me, Howard Klein. We are exclusively focused on raising awareness about companies producing or developing the next generation critical raw materials that are powering Tesla's EV battery energy transition. Please register your email at rkequity.com and follow Rodney and me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Please also subscribe to this channel, Rockstock Channel on YouTube, as well as Lithium Ion Rocks on SoundCloud for our podcasts. Please note, Rodney and me are not financial advisors or broker dealers. Nothing you hear in this video is investment advice. Please do your own research and read the disclaimer at the end of this video or on our website. Thanks again for the support. And let's get into the video. It is Friday, October 8th, and we are here with Ryan Castillo, who I guess heads up Atomus Intelligence. But when MP Materials last year went public via SPAC, you know, I had some SPAC experience, I had some knowledge of this, uh, this project and this company going public. Uh, you were very helpful um, in uh, giving me background uh, research for a, a note uh, I wrote about uh, MP Materials. Thank you very much for all of uh, yeah, that fun. work. But but I came to know uh, you, you know, during that, you, you indicated you do much more than rare earths. And, uh, I, and it, we've been seeing more and more, you're, you're commenting on, on lithium and, and nickel and hydroxide and carbonate and, you know, et cetera. So why don't, before we get into, um, this conversation and, and part of the reason for this conversation is that you have an upcoming conference on October, was it 19th and 20th? Um, yeah. You know, th there's a rare earth day on the 19th and then there's a battery materials day on the 20th. Yeah. Rodney and I are, are speaking at that conference and it's a, a hundred percent North America focused conference uh, and it's free to everyone who's watching this. Uh, uh, please bear that in mind. If you find this interesting uh, register, Thanks for having me, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be here speaking with you. Um, Atomus Intelligence is an independent research and advisory company uh, that I founded in 2012 to help clients make informed decisions involving strategic metals and materials. Our initial focus was, was as you said, on the rare earth market. Um, and in covering that space, um, we've long covered the EV market from its infancy, um, which at that time was really all about hybrids. Toyota Priuses, uh, things of that nature. So as you're likely aware, hybrid electric vehicles use nickel metal hydride batteries, at least the majority of them do, uh, which have rare earths, uh, contain rare earths in their anodes. So that was an important part of our coverage. Um, as that market has evolved to become more and more dominated by battery electric vehicles and plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, um, it was a natural fit for us to, to switch over and start covering that growing bouquet of battery metals and materials on the, the lithium ion side. Um, so in 2018, we launched a, a suite of different battery and EV focused products um, that cover our legacy coverage, obviously in, in hybrids and rare earths, but also incorporate this growing side of the market that is battery electric and plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. Um, I'm myself, I'm based in, in the Toronto area, close to my, my hometown of Sudbury, Ontario, which is a, a major nickel mining camp. 
That's great. And you're a geologist, as far as I recall, right? You know, some of yeah, our chats, yeah. you, you, you were telling me all about, um, you know, the, 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 the Sudbury nickel mines, um, you know, and, and there are some companies uh, like Frontier Lithium and, and, um, and, uh, and Talon Metals, you know, at the upcoming conference that uh, are adjacent to or, um, you know, in that, in that region. There was news on the tape uh, earlier this week that GM is partnering with GE to collaborate on supply chain considerations, focus on rare earths, copper, and e-steel. So I was a little bit surprised when I saw the copper and e-steel, not so much surprised in the rare earths, surprised that kind of like lithium and nickel wasn't mentioned yeah. in there, but I guess from a, a rare earths perspective, you know, what do you make of, of that? Not entirely surprising to see companies starting to react, starting to look at how they can move upstream and, and back integrate to, to address some of those upcoming issues. Um, the magnet gap is one that is, is, is obvious to anybody that, you know, just does a back of the envelope look forward. Um, the, the, the companies themselves, a little bit surprised to see them as the first movers in the space. Um, given that they're not entirely the, the greatest consumers of rare permanent magnets, say, uh, but they do have involvement in the business. So GE is obviously involved in, in the wind turbine business. It's involved in the medical business, many others where it's using rare magnets. Uh, GM, obviously a lot of growth in its pipeline if, uh, if its aspirations do come true, which will mean more and more demand for magnets. So great to see that it's thinking ahead and that it's acting on these issues. Um, but yeah, we're going to need to see other companies following suit. We're going to need to see the Teslas, the VWs, the, the, you know, the, the anybody else that's using uh, permanent magnet motors also addressing these issues proactively because we're, we're quickly walking into a situation where there won't be enough to go around. Um, and the main suppliers of the world, aka China, uh, will need to make hard choices on whether it satisfies its own demand or continues to export to, to others that... Uh, that also want those magnets. We're going to start. Uh, Roddy and I are much more, you know, involved on the battery materials side. So we're going to go in reverse order of your conference and, and start with the uh, uh, October twentieth uh, Battery Metals Day, uh, yep. which, which starts, I guess, at, at eleven. You know, it ends, you know, around four thirty. And uh, you know, I'm calling up the you know, the agenda here. You know, half the day is lithium. You know, and then there's nickel cobalt recycling, and Rodney and I are, are going to be speaking. You know, from 2:20 to 2:30 with with some of our updated thoughts. But, uh, so we got lithium Americas. You know, starting off, then Piedmont critical elements in Quebec, E3 metals, the DLE story in Alberta, Frontier I, I mentioned earlier in Ontario, Jindalee, You know, clay opportunity um, in. Nevada, and then Compass Minerals uh, in, in the Salt Lake, uh, the Great Salt Lake of, of Utah, and then Talon Metals, um, you know, in Minnesota, uh, Nickel Story, SPC Nickel, First Cobalt, you know, we know Trent Mel, also in Ontario, Bicycle, you, you were talking about recycling it being big, and Lithion. The chosen chemistries for EV models set in stone until the model cycle ends, or are you, are you seeing shorter chemistry, shorter term chemistry changes like what we've seen with the Tesla Model 3 short range where they've flipped to LFP? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We continue to see that, and that's likely to be, you know, accelerated going forward um, as, as the future baggers of the industries don't have the luxury to become choosers. Uh, in a market that's, you know, 
uh, supply is or demand is overwhelming supply. So I think a textbook example of where we see these intergenerational changes within models uh, is the Hongguang Mini, which is that small A series urban EV uh, that's really taken off in China. Um, so at present, there's there's over 20 different model versions of that vehicle uh, being produced in China. Um, and every few months, the, the universe of suppliers for those 20 different models uh, tends to change. So we have models that have different sizes of LFP packs, different sizes of ternary packs, um, a long list of different suppliers on the cell side, on the motor side. So I think that's a great example of where things are going with, uh, with EVs that become extremely popular, extremely fast, and the producers don't have that luxury of sticking with a single supplier uh, or just a couple of suppliers. Once you uh, factored in, you know, the rejected cells and so on, do you track yeah. the lithium intensity per kilowatt hour by chemistry? So do you look at, uh, you know, actually what is closer to the sort of actual amount that's required in order to get to the finished product rather than say a theoretical number? What we track with, through our services is generally the material that's going into cells that's going onto to roads. Um, when we start to move further upstream, uh, at present, if we look at the, the, the cell yields of some of the major producers of CATL, that's the leading producer, you know, depending on which month you're looking at, um, we, we can take that lithium amount that is in a cell um, and increase that by almost 50% once factoring in the cell yields uh, in terms of a demand increase. As we move further upstream to towards the mine mouth, we're looking at another perhaps 30% Increase so that takes us collectively when you compound those those two losses um, to an area, roughly speaking, where we need twice as much lithium at the mine mouth um, as will end up in in the cell going onto roads. Um, obviously, that ignores a, a universe where recyclers exist that will refeed some of that or the majority of that material back in. But it's just a good metric, a good rule of thumb to kind of to kind of hang your hat on in, in considering the space. So that actually is quite high then. It's actually probably slightly higher than where I'm at in my estimates. So yeah. are there particular chemistries that are, are sort of culprits that, that have lower yields that are, you know, it, it looks as if as new chemistries come in, they're a little trickier. So you, yeah. you're getting more rejected cells at that level. Yeah, certainly. So I think, it, again, to circle back to CATL, that is that largest producer on any given month, but is also the dominant producer of, of eight series of 811 and other uh, eight plus varieties of, of NCM. Um, it sell yields just over 50% in, in 2020, which I think speaks to two things. It speaks to the fact that it's in the progress of ramping up output on multiple fronts, uh, which leads to lower yields. A second factor is that it's producing chemistries that are inherently more challenging um, and, and come with lower yields. So that certainly speaks to challenges in that area. Um, and where we see that reflected in the data uh, more so, more and more as, as time is going on um, is in the, 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 the kind of stronghold popularity of the medium nickel uh, cathode chemistries, the NCM5, six and seven series um, where yields are lower, where the, the, the precursors are generally a little bit easier to work with. Um, so that's leading to, 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 to cost savings overall that, that, that make those chemistries quite popular. 
Um, and another area is that there's there's kind of evolution happening within some of those uh, cathode families. So CATL again, for example, it's taken the traditional five series, the five, two, three NCM, uh, bumped up nickel to to fifty five percent at the expense of cobalt. Um, and in in combination with cell to pack, it now has pack energy densities in the order of 170 to 180 watt hours per kilogram, which is higher than NCM standard NCM 811 packs. Um, so I think that, that collectively that's speaking to those challenges, producing those chemistries, and we're seeing cell suppliers, automakers, pack makers, um, find ways around it to, to make better use of uh, more stable medium nickel cathodes. That's interesting because I remember Umicor last year or the year before talking about 721 sort of being the, the sweet spot, I think avoiding you know, the conditions under which you have to make 811, which are quite specific. You know, when you compare, say, those mid and high nickels you know, versus LFP, are, are the yields, because it's more established, although there have been some tweaks, is, is LFP getting higher yield? Yeah, certainly LFP is getting higher yield. Um, you know, I can't, I don't have a, a number on, on hand, but it's certainly nowhere close to that, just about 50% that we're seeing um, overall for leaders in, in the high nickel space. Um, so that will serve it well, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's kind of one of the things that I, I sort of look at when we have the debate or the question around how much hydroxide and how much carbon it goes into battery cells is, it's one thing for the finished product, but it's a whole yeah. nother thing when you look at the amount of cathode produced and scrappage and whatever else is yeah. I have a different number. Yeah, most definitely. It's, it's something that needs to be considered. We see the same on the rare earth space where there's a lot of consideration going given to the final magnets that go into motors and not a lot to those, those yields as you move upstream, um, which, which add a whole lot of demand at the mine mouth where we you know, really need to consider it. Um, with the, the, the yield numbers, the total demand metrics that I cited earlier, kind of the doubling of LCE at the mine mouth level versus what goes into cells onto roads, um, certainly that's going to improve over time. You know, we don't think the industry is going to settle with 50% yields. Um, it's going to move closer to 80, eventually 90, you know, ultimately higher than 90%. Um, so that will reduce that demand. Also, kind of the blossoming of the recycling industry that we're seeing will help offset some of that. Um, but certainly it has to be taken into account. We don't need just enough lithium to go into perfect cells. We need to factor in all of the losses and challenges. Yeah, and, and, and you're seeing that I, I did the presentation at Fast Markets in terms of how much cathode is being produced versus how many cells are being produced and then sold and then installed. There's some big inventory differentials there. And I guess it's just yeah. something for people need to take notice of that because when you look at the finished product, I keep seeing reports about how much carbon and hydroxide there is, but they're not looking effectively at what, what's being produced and the losses that you're talking about. But are you seeing any thrifting initiatives and on the battery metal side that you're aware of that's sort of improving things? So cobalt continues to be the, the thrifty of choice, uh, both to, to address market side factors uh, but also to boost energy density by, by increasing nickel. Um, so the examples that we've seen are within that five series group where it's been increased to 55% to nickel at the expense of cobalt, which again, combined with C to, C to C cell to pack um, and eventually vehicle to pack really pushes that chemistry up to the, the, the forefront at the pack level. 
Um, and then within eight series, um, we've seen nickel pushed up to 82, 83% for the same reasons, um, just to, to boost yields within, or to boost performance rather within that, uh, within that series. Um, and, and Ryan, in terms of sell to pack, uh, the bandwidth in terms of moving that along the spectrum of, of the NCM, I mean, how, how far can you take that? I think you can take it quite, you mean in terms of performance gains or in terms so of- So I'm saying, can you apply a cell to pack across the entire spectrum of, of, of yeah, NCM? Yeah. I, I don't see any reason why not. I think as long as you can address the thermal issues and the cooling of the pack, yeah, I see, see no issue with that at all. Um, so what that tells us is that the, the leg up that it's giving to LFP, 5 Series and others today um, is short-lived if, if these otherwise you know, more advanced chemistries can, can adopt cell to pack and ultimately uh, cell to vehicle, um, you know, the sky's the limit. And, and that's kind of our thesis on why we think that, you know, nickel cathode can have its day again, because if you do cell to pack it, then on a cost of performance basis, it starts, the pendulum starts to shift again, if you can get that, that up again. So yeah. you don't you don't see any hiccups there in time horizon. How long do you think before we see cell to pack or cell to vehicle across? First, what needs to be addressed are those yields and the challenges making that um, cell to pack is of no benefit if we're still producing eight series at at fifty percent yields, um, and and if we continue to have those thermal challenges. So I understand that part of the logic for going with with even higher nickel with the 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 eighty two. Um, eight series was also to improve thermal stability. So um, it's counterintuitive a little bit if we're pulling out cobalt, as everybody knows that that's that's what its purpose is. But apparently that's that's part of the logic behind it. So um, perhaps that's a step forward towards having eight one one cell to pack or um, eight series cell to pack in the, the not too distant future. You know, in in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, we've seen COVID play havoc on logistical. Supply yeah. chains, amongst other things. Do you think that high inventories that we've seen in the last while are is something that that's here to stay across the industry? The, these high inventory levels, these challenges, they're here to stay. Uh, there's no doubt. Right now, we see this bulk up of inventories upstream with cell suppliers and others. Um, I think that the, the current bottlenecks that we're seeing have served as a wake-up call to the downstream. So we expect to see a bulk up of captive inventories at at that level as soon as they, they can, and if they can get their hands on it. Um, so inventories, you know, will no doubt be here as this market continues to grow, as it tries to cope with, with seasonality and volatility throughout the year, whereby, you know, one month's demand can be double the previous months. Um, so no doubt inventories are, are, are the ideal situation, but again, um, it, it presumes that it's available to be, to be stockpiled. And as the future goes on, um, that reality is going to become less and less realistic. What is the most important battery trend, in your opinion, that the market isn't correctly factoring in currently? Is there something the market's missing? I think the biggest blind spot in the battery material supply chain is, is actually rare earth elements. Often, when looking at EVs and then looking at the market for EV materials, the battery and the motor are treated as, as separate parts of a a non-existent equation when in fact they're part of one powertrain and depending what motor you're using and how efficient that motor is determines how much of that battery you consume that battery power to do a unit of work be it a, a kilometer or a mile of driving 
Um, so not having rare earths and not being able to um, empower the auto industry with the most efficient motors available means that now their EVs will, will either go less distance per charge or they need to, to boost pack capacity at a significant cost to continue delivering on that driving range that, um, that they've promised to their clientele that they've built up demand on. Um, so therein, um, you know, is, is why rare earths are a major blind spot to the battery materials supply chain. If, if shortages appear in the not too distant future, which we're projecting they will, and if those impact the auto industry, then that's going to have a ripple effect on the battery side of things. Similarly, if we face battery material shortages in the not too distant future, and suddenly automakers can't crank out as many EVs as they want, then demand for motors falls. So it has a, a counter effect as well. Uh, but they're very intertwined, and uh, and that's really, I think, something that's being underappreciated by 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 many. And and Ryan specifically, are you talking um, NDPR or what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, certainly. So the the, the motors use what are called neodymium iron boron magnets, uh, within which the the main rare earth input is NDPR, also known as didymium. Um, it's a natural combination of two elements, neodymium and praseodymium. Um, so currently the supply side of, of the, the rare earth market is struggling to keep up with demand uh, for that material. Um, and, and it will increasingly struggle to keep up with demand going forward as the demand side is not slowing down. Um, and yet the supply side, you know, can only increase at a, a realistic rate per annum. So we're, we're soon moving towards a, a future where you know, under a conservative scenario, um, demand for, for that NDPR, for that didymium, is going to be growing at one uh, mountain pass, which is, is the mine owned by MP Materials, or one Mount Weld mine per annum. So the global market needs to add one of those mines each and every year, increasingly more than, those, more than that going forward uh, to keep up with demand in EVs, which is a, a major unprecedented feet, one that comes with major lead times and, and capital investments that we're just not seeing today. So therefore, you know, the gaps are, are coming unquestionably. Is there potential for a some kind of a, a concentrate, like a short-term hack to produce a concentrate and ship to China? Is there spare capacity? Uh, yeah, they have some spare capacity and, and they're currently employing it to process concentrates that they're importing from the US, from, from Myanmar um, and elsewhere. Um, with U.S.'s plans, with, with MP Materials plans to begin processing its own material, that will liberate some capacity for China to increase its output. But um, looking forward, we, we see China continuing to increase output year after year going forward. We see a number of possible and probable producers outside of China coming online. But collectively, it is still not enough to keep up with the, the, the 7 to 10 percent steady demand growth that we're seeing for that NDPR and for those magnets that, that it goes into. Typically, a lot of the commodities we've dealt with in the past are GDP-related growth rates. So yeah. I think people don't actually understand when you do two to three times GDP, what that actually means. We, we like to think of the, the rare earths, and particularly those magnet rare earths. They're, they're kind of the, the cornerstone of a lot of government initiatives and, and policies. Um, so they really they underpin a lot of these targets related to renewable energy, um, they're, they're essential to, to meeting targets for EV uh, penetration. But whenever you hear rare earths, it, it's mainly, you know, electric motors and it's mainly NDPR, right? So any junior company that you're, you're looking at 
to produce rare earths. You're looking for the neodymium and presidium to go into magnets, just to simplify things for the most part. I know yeah. that there's there's some complexity, but just like in lithium, you're looking for lithium carbonate or hydroxide or graphite. You're looking to make you know coated spherical graphite anodes. Um, you know that are going to go into the anode. I think graphite is is similarly you know not well understood. But but I, what you just outlined in terms of the world needing you know an MP materials per year is the same dynamic in the graphite market. It's the same dynamic you know in in the lithium market. You have on this day one you know a, a whole list here you know essentially of one producer you know MP materials and as you were talking they're currently exporting their concentrate, you know, 100% to China, but they, they do have a vertical integration strategy to go all the way up to magnets here, you know, at home. Rare earths is often framed, you know, from a national security perspective, not so much from a, you know, an EV perspective. And uh, reflective of that is you have a U.S. Department of Defense as a keynote speaker, Danielle Miller, um, because, you know, it, it has... One, it has rare in the name, but it has a lot of these defense applications. But those applications are, are small in the overall quantum of, yeah. of demand, but they're absolutely critical. But I'll just read through some of these. So you have MP materials and energy fuels, vital metals, commerce resources, search minerals, Hyperion metals, we know very well. Tazo Arimo was the founder of Piedmont Lithium. And that's mostly a titanium story, but there's the rare earth kicker there. Um, they have an MOU with energy fuels, uh, but th this is all, all of these plays, by the way, are in North America. So again, this is developing a North American supply chain, uh, you know, innovation metals, rare earth salts, medallion resources, geomega resources, urban mining. I'm, uh, I'm going to spend a lot of time on this day of the conference in particular, because I don't know a lot of these names sure. and, uh, I'm, I'm going to learn a lot, but, uh, Again, when I wrote this note, you had a forecast. Prices were going to rise. I was I didn't know there was mixed, you know, CRU was out there, Canaccord. I remember MP Materials put out, you know, some forecasts. I think they may have exceeded their forecast. I mean, that stock has performed really well. I'm a shareholder in MP as well as Linus uh, based on our conversation, to be honest. Um, so thank you for that. The price has more than doubled over the past 12 months has this impacted, you know, automakers, motor choices, and what do you think, you know, pricing is going to do, you know, in the next year and few years? Surprisingly or, or not, um, it hasn't, the, the, the doubling of rare earth prices over the past year hasn't impacted automakers, motor choices as of yet. And we don't, we don't think it will. In fact, in the, the face of these price rises that we've seen over the past year, um, we see examples of companies doubling down and, and further embracing use of permanent magnet motors. So an example of that is the, the Tesla Model S refresh that now only uses permanent magnet motors. Um, another example is the, the Mercedes EQS that was, just, uh, that was just released with a permanent magnet synchronous motor, whereas the other EQ um, EVs use induction motors. So um, I think that really speaks to the efficiency gains and the cost benefits um, at the powertrain level that, that permanent magnet motors deliver. Um, so we expect that that, that trend is going to continue. Automakers are going to overwhelmingly continue to embrace and adopt permanent magnet motors as long as supplies will allow them to. Um, and, and there is room for further price increases before you know, it becomes anywhere near um, economically off-putting to continue using those motor types. Uh, looking forward with prices, we continue to see um, fundamental reasons for, for strong rare earth prices going forward. 
particularly those magnet rare earth prices, uh, where the supply side will increasingly struggle to keep up with uh, with demand. So that will put cost pressures on automakers. But um, Tesla, you know, which is which is a leader in many fronts, EV wise. Um, it's shown that that it can pass those price increases on to its its customers without affecting demand. So it's increased prices in China for for several models this year uh, to reflect material price increases and manufacturing cost increases um, with no detriment to demand. So um, that further speaks to that that robustness of of demand for for the rare earths and the magnets that they go into and the motors that. Uh, that, that, that are used in over 90% of all EVs produced today. But it, it ultimately, and the Tesla had their AGM yesterday and they said that um, they just keep talking about uh, supply chain issues, not just chips, but you know the reason for the price rises that you just said of their cars is raw material input costs. So, yeah. um, you know, lithium rare earths, you know, nickel prices, you know, at some Tesla has great cars, no impact on demand, but what about other car makers, right? You know, and, and the, um, the the urgency to kind of get the cost of EVs uh, closer to internal combustion engine cars. I mean, this is a real, this is a real issue, you know, absent, you know, massive investments in the, in the upstream supply, which also applies to rare earths. What, what types of motors is the EV industry using? Which ones dominate? You know, and which ones use rare earths? Three main types, which include induction motors, permanent magnet synchronous motors, and electrically excited synchronous motors. So of those three, only the permanent magnet synchronous motors use rare earth permanent magnets. Uh, the other two do not. But the, the detriment of not using them is that they're less efficient motors, and they're also less power dense. So they're, they're more voluminous and, uh, and heavier to deliver the same amount of, of output. So a bit of a side note, what that ultimately means is that it's really challenging for an automaker within um, kind of a single generation of a model to, to swap from one motor type to the other uh, because they have a, a certain you know, void within that vehicle structure where that motor fits, where it connects to the, the gearbox um, and dropping in a 150 kilowatt motor of a different type that is larger and heavier uh, just doesn't work. It speaks to to one of the challenges that automakers face in addressing these supply chain issues going forward. Um, and I think it speaks to why companies, EV makers, uh, VW, a great example, why they're really focusing on modularity and platforms to try to enable some of this plug and play optionality in the future, which can help mitigate against some of these supply challenges. Uh, but doesn't necessarily make it a better vehicle. You're projecting shortages of rare earths for these EV motors. What will the EV industry do? So by the end of this decade, we're, we're anticipating a gap opening up between supply and demand. Fortunately for the EV industry, you know, for, for this, this decade ahead, um, the, the magnet market is still very diverse and, and EVs remain just a small piece of that, that demand pie. Um, so what that means is that as shortages open up in the future, uh, we think the magnet industry will, will continue to focus on satisfying demand from EV makers, wind turbine manufacturers, and others because they use high performance grades of rare earth magnets um, that are higher, higher price products and higher profit margin. Um, and at the other end of the spectrum, uh, electronics manufacturers, uh, loudspeaker manufacturers, headset manufacturers, we expect they'll bear the brunt of shortages as they initially appear in the market. 
But moving into the next decade, moving beyond 2030, um, as the gap continues to widen and supply increasingly struggles to keep up with that demand growth, um, then yes, you know, uh, end users across the spectrum will begin to feel those shortages and that will push automakers to have to adopt less efficient motor types, um, at least for a portion of their, their portfolio, um, which will you know, either have a ripple effect on the battery materials side of things by pushing up demand, or it will just lower the, 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 the standards of the EV market in general, whereby you know, performance overall drops across the, the board. So yet to be seen how that unfolds. Looking beyond 10 years in the EV space is, uh, is, is a bit of witchcraft, <laughs> but we, we can attempt to, and we can try to kind of think about what's happening. I remember again last year when I looked at it, um, you know, MP Materials positioned itself like as an EV play, uh, because EVs were hot, the EV market was only 35% of rare earth's demand. So what you're basically saying is that that's why there's a fair bit of runway until 2030, because they could switch from some of those other applications to EV. Yeah. I mean, it is right to position rare earths as an EV themed play, uh, even though it's, le it's less than lithium, let's say, which is... Yeah. It's going to, we're going to 80, 90% of the lithium market is going to be EV and energy storage, battery storage generally. Like ESS is not a big driver for rare earths. It's, it's not. However, you know, what is feeding that ESS can be. So the, the rare earths go into magnets that go into motors. Uh, but when you run a motor in reverse, it becomes a generator, which is on a wind turbine. Whether it's an NCM or an LFP battery sitting in an ESS system, it's going to be powered by solar or by wind, and if it's wind, then uh, then then it can use permanent magnets in in that turbine. In that case, it certainly does bode well for demand on that front. There's there's many other kind of below the surface end uses that are are pushing that demand going forward as well. That that don't get they're not as sexy as EVs, obviously, so they don't get the same amount of attention. But you know, one that has an a, immense demand growth profile going forward, one that's parallel to EVs over the coming years. Um, is the use of those magnets in, in smart speakers and displays. Um, so things like your Amazon Echo, uh, the, the speaker part or the one that comes with the display, um, many of those are using uh, speakers within them that have rare magnets. Uh, there's, there's hundreds of millions of those selling annually and that market's really exploding. Um, so with a, a couple, uh, you know, with tens to hundreds of grams per unit, um, you know, that's just an example of another area where, where demand is really coming from. Uh, but anything else that uses a motor and, and, is, is, um, and, and there's value to be had by energy efficiency, um, then rare earths become the optimal solution for that as well. So you can think air conditioner uh, inverter motors, you can think washing machine motors, um, the motor powering your, your refrigerator compressor, um, the list goes on and on and on. Anywhere a motor is used and efficiency is, is key rare earths become the optimal solution there. So there's many underpinning demand drivers, but uh, but EVs are what is going to drive the majority of the market's growth going forward and, and why um, why they're characterized rare earths as an EV story. Got it. So rare earths um, are as investment thematic, uh, magnetic. And we'll see you on the 19th and the 20th.